global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. It's Alison Savas and welcome to another quarterly investment update on the Good Value podcast. For this update, I'm joined by Antipodes Portfolio Manager, James Rodder. James, how are you doing? Hi, Alison. Very well, thank you. So today we're going to touch on three of the biggest topics in markets that we've seen over the past quarter and provide an insight into our own portfolio positioning. We'll also have a stock story towards the end of this episode where we'll discuss a new addition to our top 10 holdings. So, James, the key issues for markets over the quarter, China, energy prices and inflation. Let's start with China. You couldn't have missed the news around developments in the property sector. Can you take us through Antipodes' views? Yep, sure, Alison. So, look, China's been tightening property policies on and off for the last five years. Uh, More recently, growth had become unsustainably high in the first half of the year. So China tightened policy again to curb speculation and house price inflation. And so new housing starts began to contract from August. Uh, The slowdown obviously exposed fairly quickly the weaker property developers. Um, Everyone knows the Evergrande story, for example. Uh, From here, the question is, can the Chinese banking system handle the Evergrande default if it comes to that? Um, when we look at that, we think the answer is yes. If you combine Evergrande's debt with that of the other risky property developers, still only accounts for around 2% of uh, system loans in China. So under an extreme stress test, banks' tier one capital would fall from around 10.5% to 9.3%, still well above uh, the regulatory minimums at 7.5%. Importantly, what this means is there's still plenty of capital in the banking system to continue lending and continue the credit impulse. The probably more important risk is whether Evergrande uh, or an Evergrande default would seize up financing for other developers, uh, which spills over to weaker house prices and the broader economic slowdown, um, which may happen in the shorter run, but over time we think they'll be, they'll be okay. So what are, what are the implications of a broader economic slowdown? Look, residential development accounts for around 10% of Chinese GDP. So simple maths, 20% fall in housing starts could shave 2% from GDP growth. Uh, Weaker housing prices also have an impact on consumption via the wealth effect uh, and indeed, you know, putting furniture and the like into your new home. So there's definitely some impact there. Further, we think there'd be impact for commodity prices. Uh, this is particularly true for commodities where China is a major consumer, where China is a major consumer, but then an immaterial producer. Things like copper and iron ore look the most vulnerable uh, using this framework. So we're definitely following developments in the Chinese property sector very closely, with an eye to those points above. So unlike what we've seen in the West, China used the rebound in domestic and global activity to tighten policy. Now, China is slowing at a faster pace than the West. And and given the risks from any sustained slowdown in the property sector, do you think China will re-stimulate? 
Yep. Look, we think it's a question of when China loosens rather than if. We think the goal of reforming the property sector probably needs to be complete before major stimulus is released. Uh, we're seeing some loosening around the edges at the moment, but with a, we expect there'll be more to come. Importantly, with government debt at less than 70% of GDP, we think there's certainly significant firepower to offset a slowdown from the property sector. And, and in the past, China's really lent on infrastructure spending to stimulate their economy. So do you think we'll see more of the same? Yeah, we think it'll be slightly different this time around. We think the stimulus will probably focus more on consumption, uh, reinforcing the social safety net, and of course, decarbonisation. So China wants to accelerate uh, its transition to a consumption and services-driven economy. To do this, they need to grow household spending at a faster pace than incomes. So China has this extraordinarily high savings rate, around 45% of disposable income. Uh, for context, that's more than double the Western world. So if China wants to become a consumption-driven consumption economy, these savings need to be run down. And that's why we think the goal of policymakers is to improve that social safety net. This will incentivize consumption today ahead of saving for the future. That means policies around affordable housing, education and healthcare. We think the changes in this regulatory backdrop are now well progressed. Uh, and investors will soon start to refocus on longer-term opportunities, particularly those around consumption trends. We think we're well-positioned for this with the likes of Tencent, Trip.com, Meituan and JD.com in our portfolios. James, let's move on to inflation and what we expect from the US Fed in terms of tapering. I must say it, it's interesting to contrast the US and China. Both are at very different points in their economic cycle. You know, as we've discussed, China is slowing and, and in all likelihood set to stimulate, while the US has passed that peak rate of stimulus. And, and Antipodes has been saying for, you know, quite some time now that we think inflation is going to be more sticky than transient. While you've had central banks take that view that near-term inflation will fade. And, and if you scroll through our past podcast episodes, you'll find a great discussion on this topic with our head of quant, Ramiz Sadakot. Now, we are seeing more and more evidence of inflationary pressures building. Does this heighten the risk of the Fed making a policy error? Yep. It's, look, it's almost a certainty that tapering will begin before the end of the year. And rate hikes may start from late 2022 as opposed to 2023. The risk then is that the Fed is tightening just as growth slows and that compounds the problem. In terms of policy error, uh, inflation will be the key. Will, this in, will inflation force the Fed's hand? As you said, Alison, policymakers globally took the view that inflation was transient, that it was a function of base effects, general reopening of the economy and supply chain issues, all of which would normalise over time. What's been interesting in the past couple of weeks is that we're now starting to see a break among Fed, amongst Fed members on just how persistent or transient inflation actually is. Our analysis shows that even as pandemic-related pressures in supply chain subside, they can be offset by pent-up pressures in wages, rents and energy prices. Wages are rising at 5% per annum versus pre-COVID levels compared to 3% per annum historically, despite this, that slack in the labour market. 
House prices in the US are accelerating at their fastest pace in 15 years, which feeds into rents with a lag. So new leases today are being signed around 7% higher, whilst the official CPI data is still imputing an average figure of only around 2%. So that pressure in rents will materialise in reported inflation over the coming year. On top of this, we now have record gas prices in Europe and oil is back over $80. So energy is definitely becoming another pressure point. Now that brings us to the third discussion point that we wanted to touch on, and that's energy. The recent move in energy prices has been pretty alarming. You know, Europe's gas price is up over 300% year to date. And and James, as you just mentioned, oil now back over $80 a barrel. You know, that's the highest it's been since 2014. So what's happening in global energy and power markets? Look, Europe's facing a shortage of gas to a strong rebound in economic, economic activity, coupled with supply issues and an underinvestment in power infrastructure. We think that even if Russia does decide to supply some additional gas, Europe is unlikely to find enough volume from traditional suppliers to fill the deficit. Despite an abundance of gas availability in the US, it's still a relatively small supplier in the global gas market. There's limited LNG export capacity until recently with there's been little incentive to invest due to weak US gas prices and weaker producer balance sheets. We think gas production from the US will definitely increase over time, and so will exports due to greater demand for gas globally as a transition fuel. And relatively low gas prices in the US at $5 a unit compared to Europe's $30 a unit. Our portfolios are well positioned for this with exposure to leading US gas producers like Exxon and Katerra. With LNG and European gas prices equivalent to $150 per barrel of oil, we're also seeing a shift to burning oil in Asia uh, for power demand. This highlights how the gas rally is now also fueling an oil rally. Consumers are definitely starting to feel this as the cost of filling a tank rises, the cost of power and heat the home rises, um, and this will be especially true heading into the Northern Hemisphere's peak winter demand season. And China's facing its own power issues. Can you take us through what's happening in the Chinese power market and, and how significant you think this shortage may be on China's uh, domestic economy and, and also the global economy? Growth in China's power demand has been strong to, um, due to domestic and global activity being strong. Uh, their hydro hydropower output, which is about 20% of total power produced in China, has however been flat due to a period of low rainfall. Uh, coal production has also been subdued due to capacity controls and tightening policies around mine safety and emissions. So coal shortages have driven the coal price higher, whilst power prices remain heavily regulated. Effectively, coal-fired power plants have now begun to make significant losses so the follow-on from this is highly energy-intensive sectors like steel and aluminium are seeing shutdowns, which is leading to pressure on raw material prices. Whilst that reduced supply is great for our investment in aluminium producer Norsk Hydro, if shutdowns in the industrial sector accelerate, there will be implications for domestic and global economic growth. The valve can be released by state relief, importing more coal, or adjusting tariffs to incentivise power production. 
We've also just started to see power prices rise for industrial users, and we think this can add to the global inflationary pulse. So it sounds like there's no easy answer to resolving Europe or China's power shortages, and, and there's a very real risk of a power crunch. You know, and this could have meaningful implications for global activity and inflation. Now, before we get into our stock story, let's turn our attention to market outlook and portfolio positioning. We all know that economic activity is moderating, but it's moderating from an unsustainably high base, just given the amount of stimulus that we've had, you know, over the last year or so. So, James, what what is the base case for the outlook next year and beyond? Yep. Look, in the near term, we think the cycle can be supported by stimulus that's already in the system and the strength of household balance sheets. Over the longer term, it can be supported by investment cycles around decarbonisation, 5G, infrastructure spending, and also catch-up spending in healthcare. We think yields should be higher in this environment as well. The yield on the US 10-year government bond has been rising in response to the more hawkish rhetoric from central banks, as I mentioned earlier, and this has fed into equity market preferences. We've seen value really lead growth since around mid-September, and we think this can can continue. The other point to keep in mind is these emerging investment cycles can tighten the extreme valuation dispersion between US equities and the rest of the world. US equities are around 65% more expensive than the rest of world equities, despite very similar earnings growth through time. Recent secular trends around digitization, software and the internet have been led by the US, but new investment cycles will benefit companies more broadly and the rest of the world is not priced for that success. I'd say the global benchmark is 60% US equities. It's probably unlikely to reflect the best investment opportunities today. So for us, that means we've maintained an underweight to US equities and an overweight to Europe on valuation grounds. Europe could also hit a sweet spot in the reopening as cross-border travel returns. Uh, Tourism accounts for around 10% of European GDP. And Europe also has a strong decarbonisation mandate, which will probably be brought forward by today's high energy prices. Against that backdrop as well, we also think Europe has a material capacity to stimulate its economy. And James, what are the risks to this base case? Alison, we see two risks that could emerge. The first one is an economic growth shock. This could come from a hard landing in China from a regulacy or policy, policy tightening perspective, or just a simple slowdown as the Western world passes the peak rate of stimulus-led growth. This would be a bad outcome for cyclicals and lower quality companies in particular. The second risk is an inflation shock from structurally higher and more volatile inflation led by the US. This is particularly relevant given the current move in energy prices. This would impact discount rates and more QE in response is likely to be considered counterproductive. This would be a very bad outcome for growth or high multiple stocks. Now, the combination of both, both an, that's both an economic shock and an inflation shock, which is a stagflation scenario, would be a very difficult environment for equities generally. But we'd say US equities would be particularly vulnerable given their elevated starting multiples. Stagflation is certainly not our base case, but a scenario we're monitoring closely and taking out portfolio insurance to protect against the tail risks where it's, an attract, you know, where it's attractively priced. 
the range of outcomes feels feels quite wide. Can you give us a bit more detail on how the portfolio is being positioned to protect against these risks, but while also, you know, gaining exposure to parts of the market where we see attractive opportunities? Yeah, look, we focus on resilient businesses that are market leaders and take will take profitable share against the backdrop of higher inflation. Uh, we're also disciplined around valuations. We're also and, and monitoring the cyclical tilt in the portfolio. So we think it's probably an appropriate time to maintain a barbell approach to investment. So we're overweight, overweight various um, European cyclicals that will perform well in a reopening. Financials like Unicredit and ING, uh, travel exposures like Airbus. But we're also overweight US natural gas, given the opportunity that's emerging there. And having exposure to sort of longer dated investment cycles like decarbonisation via Siemens or compute and 5G via TSMC. At the other end of the barbell, we have long-term secular growth opportunities that we've invested in, like social commerce via Tencent and Facebook, cloud infrastructure via Microsoft. These opportunities are cheap relative to their growth profile and also cheap relative to their peers. Our long-short strategy aims to provide additional downside protection. For example, we're currently short a basket of what we see as weak and highly geared cyclicals in a region and sector neutral fashion. We also have a hedge against growth traps. Together, these aim to provide a hedge against the risk of the correlated stagflation triggered drawdown scenario. Now it's time to move on to our stock discussion. Frontier Communications is a fixed-line broadband telco in the US that's emerged from bankruptcy with a strong balance sheet. And it's recently become a top 10 holding across the Antipodes global portfolios. James, can you take us through the broader background? Yep. So, look, to set the scene, the US is a pretty interesting telco market. Um, If we look at genuinely fast internet connections, less than 5% of the population have a a true choice of, say, three or four, three or more broadband networks. Uh, the rest of the country is less competitive and it's split into 35% who have a choice between uh, a cable connection or an incumbent telco fibre network, with the remaining 60% of the country having only really the cable network uh, as the choice for fast internet. That 60% obviously usually has a traditional telco offering uh, something slower or, or or a less good product like ADSL via copper. Uh, The other interesting thing is there's no regulatory oversight of pricing either, uh, which has allowed these companies uh, to be very profitable over time. In terms of demand trends, internet traffic's growing at 30% per annum, and obviously legacy copper broadband networks aren't able to handle that data load. Uh, Cable has been able to manage so far, but is increasingly constrained due to the laws of, of physics, basically. Subscribers are switching from cable TV to streaming, which is also leading to an explosion in bandwidth demand, plus an increasing need for uplink due to uh, things like cloud cloud computing uh, and also gaming, uh, cloud gaming. This leaves us with fibre as the only future-proof broadband technology that can keep accommodating increasing data loads on both the downlink and the uplink at low cost. And can you frame Frontier's opportunity for us? Yeah. So Frontier is obviously a a legacy uh, copper telco provider. 
Um, and their management team or their prior management team didn't invest um, in taking the business forward. The company had a lot of debt, uh, it lost subscribers and it ultimately went bankrupt. It did, however, emerge from Chapter 11 around six months ago with a new and very credible management team and a strategy. It also emerged with a shareholder base of credit-focused investors uh, that were previous bondholders and currently are continuing to sell down the stock. In terms of the business, it has three assets uh, from our point of view in terms of, in terms of framing, framing the opportunity. Um, and these exist on a market capitalization of $7 billion against debt of $6 billion. So the first business is a legacy copper business. Um, think about it as your traditional telco, earning around $1.7 billion of EBITDA, which we would value at around four times, um, or you know, close, to seven, close to $7 billion. It has a fiber business, earning around $1 billion of EBITDA across 3 million homes. Um, and the market values those assets at in excess of 13 times in, in, in uh, various private market transactions we've seen. So that's around $13 billion of value. So together that's around $20 billion of value from um, their existing uh, businesses that are you know, generating income today, uh, noting a, you know, a, low a low multiple that we would put on the, on the legacy assets. Now, the interesting thing for us is we would put additional value on what we see to be the large growth opportunity to roll out fibre inside their lo copper locations, and this is what excites us. So Frontiers now aggressively rolling out fibre to the home throughout their legacy copper footprint. As the incumbent um, telco provider across, across their regions, they also have a cost and speed to market advantage, which makes it very difficult for a third operator to enter the market and make decent returns on their capital. So Frontier's copper broadband network passes around 8% of residential homes in the US, or 11 million households. Um, in over 90% of these homes, Frontier has either no competition or competition from just the one cable operator. We think Frontier has a unique opportunity to roll out fibre to the home into this footprint at 15 to 30% uh, unlevered internal rates of return. And if we compare that to the fibre deals valued at around a 13 times plus multiple we mentioned before in private markets, that's a two to four times up, uplift on each dollar of capital that they invest in these projects. Our confidence in these numbers comes from a detailed look at the rollout cost estimates, historical US fibre rollouts, and historic penetration rates which hit 50% market share in just a few years, as a significant number of consumers understand fibre internet is a superior product to cable. On our analysis, there's 4 million prime homes in their existing footprint in terms of income profile and population density, where rolling out fibre to these homes alone will create around $10 billion in equity value um, over and above the capital invested versus today's market cap of just $7 billion. So it sounds like Frontier is a clear beneficiary of our lives becoming just increasingly more connected. And, and it's a good example of an attractively priced business with defensive characteristics. That's right. Look, the company has multiple ways of winning from what we would say the, is the product cycle 
uh, definitely the competitive dynamics of, of fiber versus cable internet, uh, and also the, the very strong uh, management team they've brought in. And we think the valuation is very attractive. Um, running through those numbers above, we'd see close to 100% equity upside if we simply put the existing fibre on copper networks on relevant peer multiples. And we also see significant further upside from the value of overbuilding that legacy copper footprint with fibre. Um, in terms of you know, some of the things we touched upon earlier, internet providers uh, in the US are unregulated and are typically able to price ahead of inflation. So from a construction perspective, uh, a portfolio construction perspective, adding frontiers also helped moderate uh, the cyclical tilt in the portfolio. Thanks, James. Some great insights there. I hope all our clients and listeners enjoyed this quarterly market update and our insights on a new portfolio edition. For more information on Antipodes or our views, please head to our website, antipodespartners.com, or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you can get an alert as soon as our next episode goes live in a few weeks.